Hi everybody, I'm Dr. Megan Hanlon and welcome to Unraveling Science, the podcast where I speak to leading scientific researchers and ask them who they are, what they do and why they are so passionate about doing it. Throughout this series, I hope to welcome you all into the world of research and to really get a glimpse of the people behind the lab coats, from immunology to astronomy, cancer biology to bioengineering and much more. So, if you're ready, sit back and let's begin Unraveling Science. Okay, so today I'm joined by Professor Ursula Fearon, the Chair of Molecular Rheumatology in Trinity College Dublin. So Ursula has focused her career on understanding the mechanisms that drive inflammatory arthritis with an extremely translational and bench-to-bedside approach. And she's also been awarded significant funding for many funding bodies such as DRP and Aspire, HRB, SFI, and Arthritis Ireland, to name but a few. But aside from all of this, Ursula has been my supervisor and mentor for the past four years, which I think speaks volumes to her patience. So um, I'm delighted to sit down and chat to you today, Ursula. So thanks for coming on Unraveling Science. Oh, no, you are a pleasure, Megan, and still are a pleasure, I have to say. <laughs> well, you're being patient with me now coming on the podcast, so there you go. <laughs> um, so, Ursula, I suppose just to start right in, um, I'm interested in what you were like in school, and were you always interested in science, or were there other careers in mind when you were kind of 10 or 11? Yeah, uh, well, in school now, I have to admit, I had a twin brother who was like um, the complete opposite to me. So my twin brother was the type of person that came home on a Friday had all his homework done and he went off and did his things for the weekend. Whereas I arrived on the Sunday night at 11 o'clock finishing off all my homework and I was always like last minute. So I, I have to admit, I wouldn't have been the best student. I would have been, you know, middle of the road. But then when it came towards my leaving cert, I realized that I actually loved science, particularly biology, because I had the most amazing teacher. I went to Muckers College in Donnybrook and I had the most amazing teacher called Miss Mitchell. And when she was teaching biology, she really taught it in a way that she just didn't go through the chapter as and you know what it was all about she actually tried to relate what the chapter meant to everyday life so what was on the news and I suppose around our time a lot of HIV was on the news and so she tried to relate what we were learning in our biology to everyday life incidences so that kind of really got me interested in biology and patients and I suppose my first real I suppose thought of ever wanting to be a scientist and this is really sad it's when I was about 10 and I watched this program on TV, and you won't remember this, Megan, because I don't even think you were born. Um, it was called Quincy, oh. and he was a pathologist, okay? And it was an American TV program, and basically I was fascinated how, from going into a crime scene, how he could figure out how the crime was done, who did the crime, just by picking up little bits of information and DNA and everything. And so really, between those two things, between my second year secondary school teacher and Quincy that kind of started me off on my road into science which is a bit mad but I suppose the only other thing that and probably every now and again I think I wouldn't mind doing is um I was mad into sports so when I was in school I think that was one of my parents problems that um I spent too much time playing sports so I played hockey table tennis and actually bizarrely I was really good at the discus I mean, very good at the discus, the extent that they wanted to send me to America, some of my coaches, to get a scholarship for discus in America. I know. So actually, I played a load, a load of sports. And so if I didn't do science, I think I would have done PE teaching. So they're kind of the two areas that I would have was really strong in in school, should I say. And when you were kind of coming up to leave and certain, I suppose, later on in your teens, when you were filling out your CAO, 
was science kind of to the forefront um, or were you looking it was at basically, yeah, no, basically two things were on my, my all the way to my CAO, which was PE teaching or any science course on the, um, across the university. So basically that, they were my two things. So, you know, I got the science and I think the, I had been injured in my last year in hockey. So probably the science went over them because I couldn't play hockey for two or three years. So And then uh, you did your undergrad in UCD. Yeah. So actually it's, it's interesting because I listened to one of your first podcasts where you were talking about when you did biomedical sciences that actually um, that was very specified. Whereas when I did science, um, you went in in first year and you didn't really know what you were doing. So I did biology, maths, chemistry and geology of all things um, and so to this day I'm a bit of a geologist nerd and as you probably remember I went to Iceland two years ago and um, so actually if I didn't do if I hadn't done what I did I probably would have done geology as well so I mean I went to Iceland two years ago and I went from black sand beaches to you know um, to the most amazing waterfalls to you know nerdly sitting on one side of the European plate my husband sitting on the other side of the European plate and I think I came back from Iceland with 2,000 photographs of rocks and I have made some of my friends sit through 2,000 photographs of rocks when they come over for dinner parties so that was my first year and I did then I think in second year give up geology because I went straight into you had to you chose subjects in second and third year so I majored in biochemistry in Uh third year and I minored in chemistry and then in final year then I fully majored in biochemistry and I suppose that's really was the start of what led me to where I am now because most of the I think actually all of the biochemistry um, fourth year projects were very basic you know pure science biochemistry and I picked the only project that had a human aspect with Professor Gethin McBade who's actually still in um, UCD Uh biochemistry and it was in neuroscience so I think um, it was the first insight I got into applying science to human disease. So then when I finished in biochemistry in UCD, I applied for a PhD down in St. Vincent's Hospital with the renowned endocrinologist, Professor Joe McKenna. And um, bizarrely, in a completely different field to rheumatology, I looked at the um, role of specific neuropeptides in regulation and steroid function in patients that have polycystic ovary syndrome and infertility. So very different to what I do now. But then again, that really reinforced that all the work I was doing was in patients who would really reinforce that that's the area of research I wanted to be in. Yeah, and, and I've often heard you talk kind of fondly of your days, your PhD days in, in the ERC. Um, and did you enjoy your PhD? Did you find it a stressful time or, or is it something to look back on? kind of with good memories yeah no actually do you know what I think anyone that has done a PhD which I suspect you might know very recently as you just graduated a PhD I look back on it very fondly but it's a huge learning experience and the you get so many highs from it but you very much will have your very low days as well where you could be doing an experiment for three to six months and it's not working out and then suddenly it works out after six months and you've forgotten about those, you know, four to six months that happened beforehand. So yes, no, I have a very good positive, you know, feeling about my PhD. Plus I made some great friends um, and I think the ERC was very unique um, from my point of view, because it wasn't just one lab and there was two big labs and we were mixed. So there was, um, there was obviously endocrinology, there was the cancer group, there was the liver group, dermatology group, rheumatology group, which I wasn't Mm. even in at the time. And basically all the groups overlapped in the two labs. So you got insight into 
other diseases and you got insight into how what you were looking at could actually be applied to another disease. So actually, it was a great place for a young PhD student to actually develop because not alone were they only were they learning in their own field, but they were also learning in another field. And every Thursday, we used to have a multidisciplinary um, research meeting where either PhD students or postdocs used to present from different fields, um, either on their research or do a journal club. So I think that was a, an, an amazing environment, I think, for a PhD student because you weren't closeted, which a lot of us can get closeted in our own area. And sometimes when you see another area and how they're applying a technique, you can actually apply it to your own area. So you learn an awful lot. And then, yeah. you know, in the, I suppose, a lot of the meetings we go to, a lot of the cytokines and signaling pathways and proteins that we look at, or even the drugs that we look at, they've been used in cancer as well as autoimmune diseases. So we learn an awful lot from, you know, different fields. Yeah, no, definitely. And I think I've spoke to a few researchers who have either are still in the ERC or who are past members. And I think the kind of overwhelming thing is the translational aspect as well, that, you know, you're working so closely yeah. with the clinicians and that it's based in hospital environment. Yeah. And so from your PhD, then you then moved over to the UK uh, for a postdoc and that was in rheumatology. So that was your first kind of, I suppose, experience in, in rheumatology. What led you there? or Why did yeah. you decide to take that, that position? Um, well, I'd, like to, I'd like to say that what led me to Leeds was there was a fantastic postdoc there that I was going to, but the love of my life was there, should I say. So my husband now, wasn't my husband then, but um, Professor Doug Beale, who you know, um, I was you know, dating at the time, he lived um, over in Leeds. So I moved over to Leeds with all intentions of continuing on research in steroidogenesis, but then an opening came up in the rheumatology unit, and I said... I'd give it six months and here I am 20, I think two years later. Yeah. But what was really interesting um, is that, and I know you know Cleo Farley, what was really interesting, and this really relates back to you, Megan, as well, that the translational um, journal clubs in Vincent's, I remember Cleo was the director of, she probably doesn't even remember this, the director of the ERC at the time, and she got really bored of us all. So I would come in from endocrinology and give a journal club on a journal from endocrinology. So she got really bored of us all just doing her own thing. So she challenged us all and she said, I don't want you to present work in your own area. I want you to present work in a different area that maybe could be applied to your area, but is outside your comfort zone. So I remember I was up the following week after she you know, announced this and I was going, oh my God, like, you know, <laughs> here I go, I'm the guinea pig, you know. So I picked a journal from JCI, and I remember this to this day. So I was working on these neuropeptides called proprio-melanocortins that are produced in the brain. And basically one of them in particular, it regulates steroid hormones. But my project for my PhD was, do any of the other ones regulate the steroid hormones? But this paper was all about, and you're going to laugh in a minute, Megan, mm. how... Um, a specific protein, an inflammatory protein that is produced by autoimmune diseases called Oncostatin M. No way! Can, can regulate POMC peptides to the jack stack signaling pathway. So when I moved to Leeds, the first thing I looked at in the rheumatoid joint was Oncostatin M. That's mad. So, and my, yes, and one of my first papers out of Leeds was on Oncostatin M regulating fibroblasts. And, um, and we, have, we also looked at um, Jack Statsignan and all the stuff. So that's really, I suppose, I brought from my last journal club. It was the first thing that I looked at in Leeds. Come full circle because one of our papers this year is on Oncostatin M, you know, regulating Jack Stat pathways and cells from patients with rheumatoid arthritis. So. I, I was just, that's, I was just about to say that that's funny that your first paper from Leeds was on that because my first paper ever <laughs> was, that, was, that, was, 
that name. I didn't know that. That's mad. Yeah, but I think it's, and I think that kind of relates back to how important it is to be exposed to other fields because that's where an awful lot of the time you get your ideas from. Definitely. And, and were you kind of, I know you said you were, you've travelled over to Leeds and to the UK, you know, uh, for romance and love, but were you worried? Were you nervous going over? Well, did you see that the big advan- adventure heading over to Leeds? Um, I, you know, I actually wasn't nervous. I probably should have been nervous, but I wasn't nervous. And I think literally I was in the lab about two months over there and I loved it and um and I suddenly realized, and I got into rheumatology and I didn't realize you know probably a bit naive as well I didn't realize it at the time I got into rheumatology at a very exciting time so I started rheumatology in 1998 and basically that was the time when the biologic agents were being started to be clinical trials and so they were coming into the clinics and patients were being treated with them so it was just a vast amount of research going on about whether these new biologic agents would work. And, you know, and I, you've, you've seen me present this 25 years, 30 years ago, um, a patient that came to the clinic with um, rheumatoid arthritis or psoriatic arthritis, basically the treatment, you know, the treatment strategies were fairly poor. And so within five years of being diagnosed with that treatment, um, you would be physically disabled. And within 10 years, you know, the vast majority of patients with that diagnosis would not be working anymore. So it was actually a very bad prognosis. And at the time, they thought there was no good drug coming on the market to treat these patients. So, and, and an awful lot of these patients, rheumatoid and psoriatic arthritis, um, which are autoimmune diseases, and I think they really happen in young people from 35 to 45. So, you know, the middle of where you should be progressing in um, your work and also for childbearing years for women. So actually, it's a really hard time if you get diagnosed with it. So at that point, before 95, really, the drugs were really weren't great for patients. So I arrived in, in the middle of all of this, not knowing anti-TNF or all these other biologic agents were you know, coming into clinics. So um, it was a very exciting time. So yeah, within two or three months, um, I'd got myself stuck in rheumatology and, um, and I've been there ever since. I think Paul Emery, mm. who was the lead there at the time, but still is the lead there, Paul um, really gave me autonomy. So actually he allowed me, even as a very you know, young postdoc, he kind of gave me free reign and I was basically allowed to do what I wanted and come up with ideas that I wanted. So in some respects it was hard because I wasn't really being mentored, but another way therefore it kind of made me very independent and being able to kind of, you know, come up with ideas and develop ideas in the lab good or bad some of them are bad but there you go <laughs> and how long did you spend over in Leeds then good question I'm trying to think now um, I spent five years in Leeds and so was firmly rooted in rheumatology at that stage so then I came back to you know the, the scene of the crime back to the <laughs> education research center where I did my PhD and continued on in rheumatology and I suppose at that point so while I had the autonomy in Leeds to develop my own ideas as a postdoc when I moved back to the Education Research Centre, that's when I really yes, we started to write my own grants, get my own grant, and started to supervise my own students and postdocs. So within the umbrella of the rheumatology unit, which was Barry, Oliver, Doug at the time, like it, it was a group, but I, as a, I was a PI in my own right within the group and had my own PhD students and postdocs. Yeah, and, and so I suppose to kind of get into rheumatology and the area, could you maybe give us, um, and for people who are listening, an insight into, you know, what, rheumatoid arthritis presents as for a patient mm-hmm. and then also kind of the mechanisms or the molecular mechanisms that play kind of behind the scenes that we as researchers would study. 
Yeah. So basically, um, what we mean by autoimmune disease is that your body, for some bizarre reason, starts to attack itself when it shouldn't attack itself. So our normal immune system responds and detects a wide variety of agents, viruses and bacteria that enter our body. And once they enter our body, our immune system, you know, when it's working properly, it distinguishes that these, you know, bacteria or viruses are, you know, they're foreign, they're from outside, you know, and they're not our healthy tissue. So once the pathogen enters our body, our proper functioning immune system launches this, you know, attack and response and eliminates the bacteria virus. And then our, our, our immune system has this ability to shut off that response. But in autoimmune diseases, what happens is that we have this inability, one, to switch off that response. But two, what happens is that our immune system is so dysfunctional that it starts to recognize our own cells and our own tissue as foreign. So we start to attack ourselves and then our immune system isn't actually able to switch that off. So that's so in what I work on, which is rheumatoid arthritis and psoriatic arthritis, what happens in those is that our, for some reason, we don't know what triggers it. So we think there's a genetic, some kind of genetic background, but that's only one part of the story. Then we think there's another hit and we don't know what the hit is. It's some kind of environmental hit. There's a link to smoking. It could be a link to infectious diseases or other environmental agents. And what we think is that they then, with the genetic background, change just something about your cells and your tissue that makes your normal immune system decide, oh, that's foreign. So therefore, our immune system starts to attack our cells and our tissue. And in the context of you know, rheumatoid arthritis and psoriatic, well, for rheumatoid arthritis, our immune cells go straight to our joints and start to attack basically our cartilage and bone and destroy the joints. But in psoriatic arthritis, you have the added problem that it also goes to the skin and starts to attack our skin cells as well. So basically, it's our immune system has gone completely wrong. So while a lot of my work is, you know, there's, there's various different aspects of it. Um, but one aspect is we, we're trying to understand what drives the whole thing. So a lot of the work we do in the lab is trying to find new pathways or new proteins that we can block to turn off the immune system and um, so that you know, this isn't turned on anymore and the inflammation goes away. But we also kind of want to go back further than that. A lot of work we're doing at the moment is trying to identify patients that you know don't have the disease, yes, but have they had that first initial trigger, but they haven't developed disease. So I suppose my lab works in really three areas, I suppose. The first area is trying to find something a protein in your in your blood that might tell us as scientists and the clinicians that if you have high levels of that protein it might mean that you could develop an autoimmune disease like rheumatoid arthritis and psoriatic arthritis and if we do find one of these proteins that we're interested in the lab and the blood what happens is then we will follow those patients quite routinely um, in the clinics so that when they do start to develop inflammation and that they can actually be treated really, really early because studies have shown that the earlier you treat a patient, the much better chance they have of reaching remission. So that's, I suppose, one of our first big ones. The second, I suppose, area that we're interested in is that at the moment we have this arsenal of drugs. I mean, really, we have six or seven really good drugs for the treatment of rheumatoid arthritis and psoriatic arthritis. But still, even with all these drugs, only one in four patients reaches remission. So we're trying to figure out, you know, why do, you know, what is only one patient really get to remission? What happens to the other three quarters? Some of them have suboptimal responses and some of them have suboptimal responses with, you know, um, with infections and, you know, side effects. And um, so a lot of the work now is trying to understand what's different about the patient that goes into remission 
and what's different about the patients that don't. Because what happens to the patients that don't, not alone you know, do they still have the inflammation, but they go on this cycle where they're put on a whole load of different drugs. They're put on a drug for six months, it doesn't work, then they're put on another drug for six months, it doesn't work. And that could go on for two years. And by the time the clinician finds the right drug, they mm-hmm. could have some destruction in their joint. So a lot of the work we're doing is trying to look at patients at, you know, at the beginning of disease and try and figure out, can we find a protein that will predict you know, which drug they will respond to? And that's kind of coming along the lines, not just in autoimmune diseases, but also in cancer and many other diseases where we're, we're trying to do a personalized approach for patients and really trying to figure out from the beginning what they should be treated with rather than you know, working your way through all the different drugs and eventually finding one that does work, but it might be too late at that stage. They're the first two aspects. And mm-hmm. I suppose the third aspect is those patients that no drug works for them at the moment. And I think you've been involved in an awful lot of that. And um, that's really us interrogating um, the cells and the tissue that we obtain from patients to see whether we can identify other molecules or proteins that are driving the disease. And then we test to see whether if we block those proteins, and this is all in the lab, can we stop inflammation? And if we can, that's when maybe you start to try and develop, could this be brought into the clinic? But I suppose my work um, is very much so, all of it, probably 90% of it, maybe not all, 90% of it is done in tissue and cells from patients. And I think this is really, really important because if you do these experiments in um, cell lines. And don't get me wrong, we do a fair bit of work in cell lines just to give us proof of concept and the mechanisms of disease. But actually, you know, when you're blocking a pathway, because it doesn't work for every patient, if you just do all your experiments in a cell line, you know, it either works or it doesn't. Whereas actually, if you do it in patient samples, suddenly you start to see trends that some patients respond, some patients don't. And some patients have suboptimal responses. And what you can do is look at those patients and see, well, is there anything similar or common to the patients that go into the three different categories? So it's really important, I think, anyway, when you're developing drugs or trying to understand why patients respond, that you use patient samples. And I suppose that's where I really have to thank all the patients because without them, basically, my lab wouldn't exist because we do 90% of our work on patients. And without them, you know, we wouldn't, I suppose, I don't think anyway, move forward in trying to answer those three questions that I've just talked about, which is disease onset, you know, personalized medicine and coming up with new drugs. No, definitely. And, you know, within your group, you've got links with various different kind of hospitals and, and clinicians, but the kind of strongest link, I suppose, is with Professor Doug Veal in, in Timmins University Hospital. Um, but yeah, also within the three points that you've mentioned there, but within that, I suppose the molecular and kind of the, the basic science that your research group does, one of the key things is this kind of whole area of hypoxia and that the joint is profoundly hypoxic. And can you kind of talk to me a bit about that and what, well, firstly, what hypoxia means and how that's impacting then the immune cells in the joint? Yeah. So basically, um, a lot, and this kind of comes back to, I suppose, one of my very first um, research experiments or even, you know, papers when I was in Leeds. So when we look into the joint of um, patients at autoscopy, like you were saying, we look in with the video. And when you look in um, to a normal joint, um, you can see it, it really just looks like clink film and there's no immune cells in there, there's no blood vessels in there. But when you look into the joint of a patient with rheumatoid arthritis and psoriatic arthritis, one what we can see is these, you know, it's big lumps of tissue and these big lumps of tissue is what we call synovitis and they're 
packed full of immune cells that actually shouldn't be in the joint. So these immune cells are producing you know, horrible proteins that are basically eating away at your cartilage and bone. But the only way these immune cells can be there is that they get there from the blood. So basically what happens is that we get this formation of new blood vessels at the site, in the tissue, in the joint, and this allows all these horrible immune cells to come into the joint. So the, the angiogenesis that we call it, the new blood vessels, feeds all the immune cells in the joint because it brings nutrients in the blood and it also brings oxygen. But what happens when you're at the site of inflammation is that because those immune cells are so dysfunctional uh, and because they need a lot of energy, they need to eat an awful lot, they want a lot, they want lots of oxygen, they want lots of nutrients. So they gobble it all up to become activated. And when they're doing that, um, they gobble up all the oxygen. So therefore, they outpace the blood supply. And then what you get is what we call an hypoxic environment where there's not enough oxygen to keep the cells going. But immune cells are extremely clever. So when they don't have enough oxygen, they can actually switch the way they use their energy so that it keeps them activated. So when they're in a well oxygenated, and this is probably, you know, it's not this way all the time, but when they're in a well oxygenated environment, they use a particular metabolic pathway, which I'm not going to get into, which is, is there and it produces lots of energy, but it's quite slow. But when they go into a hypoxic environment which we say is very little oxygen they switch their energy over to this other pathway which doesn't give them as much energy but actually it's much quicker so they it's like um, a kid going into a sweet shop they just go in and eat all these sweets get really activated and then you know it's really bad for them so that's kind of what immune cells are like they want lots of energy lots of sweets and so basically that hypoxic environment drives that whole you know process and I suppose really what got me involved in it is that and I'm still trying to find out the answer to this which um, I hope one of my um, UPSG students is going to find the answer to is that when you look in the joints of rheumatoid patients they have lots of new blood vessels that are feeding the immune systems but these blood vessels look straight that's all I will describe but when you look in the joint of a patient with psoriatic arthritis the blood vessels are really curly they actually look like what the blood vessels like look like in cancer mm. and I'm still trying to figure out after 20 years I described that phenomenon about 20 years ago and I'm still trying to find out why that is and I know there are certain proteins that are driving the difference in the blood vessel morphology in the two tissues and then I know that leads to different oxygen levels in the tissue and at the moment we're trying to figure out does that lead to different metabolic pathways between the two tissues but hypoxia is a very bad environment for, for the joint anyway, because it drives the immune cells to become more activated, more hyperactivated. And they start to, as I said, switch their metabolism to get more sugar really, really, really quickly. So a lot of our research at the moment um, is to try and switch off mm. different parts of the metabolic pathway. So switch off the immune cells getting this quick energy and therefore can we deactivate them and then you know, stop the inflammation. Yeah, and and within you know these different metabolic kind of inhibitors or, or activators, is there a worry that there'd be off-target effects or side effects? Because would this target normal, healthy cells who do need this type of metabolism to normally function? Yeah, I feel like I'm in my PhD vibe now. Um, Sorry, <laughs> you're okay. No, it's actually a really good question. So actually, an awful lot. So some of the drugs that we use at the moment, like um, some of the anti-TNFs, um, anti-IL-6, and an, uh, one of the small molecular weight inhibitors we've shown in the lab, and these are drugs that are given to patients. 
they actually, as part, if they work in a patient, we can see in the patient's cells and tissue that they actually switch their metabolism to this, back to the normal metabolism, which I'm talking about. But there are then, we and a lot of other people are looking at um, targeting metabolic pathways as well, like specific proteins in the metabolic pathways. And yes, there is a slight worry about that from the point of view that will they have off-target effects because could it affect your normal cells? But a few studies have come out now showing that one, because our immune cells are, you know, in these diseases are dysfunctional, they actually, once you switch off those proteins, the metabolic proteins, it actually switches off the metabolism and switches off the inflammation. Whereas even though the normal cells, you know, get this, you know, inhibitor to switch off the metabolism, we don't want to happen for the normal cells because our normal cells are normal they're able to actually fluctuate their pathways to compensate for that. So the normal cells, because they're not abnormal, when they get this metabolic inhibitor, they're able to fluctuate You know, their different metabolic pathways to compensate for it, whereas actually the immune cells that are abnormal can't do that. So once you switch them off, we hope they stay switched off. And I think this was shown in a, in a paper, a dermatology paper recently, where they looked in the skin, and I think it was psoriasis, and they found that when they blocked um, a specific protein, that it affected the skin cells of the psoriasis and stopped the inflammation, but it didn't affect normal skin cells. So that's so we are getting more and more information as the you know as you know, the months go by, the years go by, that actually you, you possibly can target metabolism without affecting normal cells. Um, and also, I mean, apart from immune cells uh, in the lab, you also look at kind of the stromal cells, so the endothelial yeah. cells, which are the, uh, create the blood vessels, and then resident fibroblasts, which kind of line the joint. Yeah. So, and I think a lot of your kind of earlier work was on that, although we still do work on fibroblasts. So maybe talk us through, you know, the fibroblast work, and they kind of have an immune-like component nearly as well. I mean, they're, they're, they can secrete a lot of inflammatory cytokines too. Yeah, no, they can. I mean, the, the, my, when I started off in rheumatology, I only worked on um, stromal cells. And actually, and then I got into endothelial cells, which are stromal cells. So synovial fibroblasts, the endothelial cells are the cells that line the blood vessels. And actually, they allow the oxygen and the nutrients to come into the joint and allow the immune cells to um, infiltrate the joint as well. So that was one stromal cell that I was really interested in. And the second stromal cell that I was really interested in was the synovial fibroblasts. And what we know about synovial fibroblasts is that they are primed. They just have this ability that the minute they're in the joint and the minute they're activated, they're primed to invade cartilage and bone. So they release proteins that basically eat holes in your cartilage and your bone. And they also um, release other molecules that actually cause your bone as well to become dysfunctional. So they're really, one, they're very invasive and two, they're very destructive. But actually, you know, up to maybe uh, six, seven years ago, we all talked about synovial fibroblasts kind of as one homogenous group of fibroblasts. But now we know there's a whole different subsets of fibroblasts in the joint. And some possibly are protective and some are invasive. So actually what we're doing at the moment in the lab is, particularly with those two diseases I'm interested in, is, is rheumatoid arthritis and psoriatic arthritis. And we're trying to look at the one the different types of fibroblasts that are in the joint to, you know, which, you know, when we look at the different subtypes, which ones are, you know, more invasive, which ones aren't. And then we're also trying to figure out, is metabolism driving that invasive capacity of those cells? So actually, um, there's a lot going on. And actually, I've kind of come full circle because I only worked on them for the first probably 10, 12 years. Then five years ago, when I moved to, to Trinity, 
I actually, suddenly my lab opened up hugely to looking at all the other cells in the joint. So now it's like in the lab, we have, you know, little groups. We have the monocyte DC macrophage group. Then we have the T cell B cell group. And then we have the stromal cell group, the synovial fibroblasts and the endothelial cells. And actually, I think this is really important because when somebody is just looking at one cell type, so we take cells out of the joint. And when you look at one cell type, we understand, we start to understand how it's producing you know, horrible proteins that are bad for the joint. And, you know, we start to understand what drives them to invade your cartilage and bone and, you know, eat holes basically in your cartilage and bone. But actually, some of the, some of the reason why things don't you know, translate over to the patient is because you're looking at one cell, mm. whereas actually in the joint, all those cells are interacting, you know, and so there's probably about 10 main cell types, but subtypes of all those cells, it's probably about 30 to 50. <laughs> so really a lot of the work that we do in the lab is one, we look at the individual cells, but two then we try to see how those cells influence each other's you know, effects. So a lot, of the, a lot of people in the lab would be looking at the stromal cells like the fibroblasts and we, you know, we put them in little wells or plates in the lab with T cells and normal T cells. And we try to figure out that if you put in a normal immune cell in with a, you know, a fibroblast from a, you know, a patient, you know, will that fibroblast cause that immune cell to become you know, a bad immune cell? And it actually does. Mm. So I think it's understanding how the cells work alone, but I think ultimately we have to understand how the cells work together because in the joint, in the disease, in the patient, that's how they're working. They're not working alone. So it's very, very complicated. And when you think about it in those terms, I actually think, oh my God, isn't it just amazing that we've actually found the six or seven therapies that treat these patients already? I mean, you know, it's a one in a million shot, you know? So mm-hmm. actually the fact that we have things like anti-TNF and ones that block other pathways are specific immune cells is actually amazing um, considering what is actually going on in the joints and how complex it is. No, definitely. And I think the way you kind of spoke there that the fibroblasts can kind of turn or activate the immune cells into being bad. And I think that's something about immune cells that they're quite plastic. Um, well, some of them do have their defined fate, but for most the majority of them, one kind of different stimulus can move their phenotype or their yeah. I suppose the way they act from being protective and homeostatic because obviously we need immune cells for normal yeah. uh, everyday life but if you get they get a different stimulus can switch them and maybe become kind of activated and and aggravated yeah. in in the RA joint uh, so there's actually I think that's one of the reasons why I love rheumatology as well is because there's so many different avenues that you could go mm. to look at to target yeah and I think the thing there as well with all the new we've got these fantastic new technologies over the last couple of years that you know I suppose 10 years ago and 15 years ago when we talked about a cell you know say the fibroblasts in the joint we talked about it as just one cell mm. whereas now with these technologies which I'm not going to get into like RNA-seq and things like that we're actually now being able to find a whole lot of different subsets of these cells within one group and actually what we're finding is that actually some of the cells are bad and then some of the cells as you said are good because they're trying to counteract the bad ones so the more we understand about that the more insight we're going to get into you know what's driving the information in these patients i mean ideally you know what you know there's a, there's a funny cartoon that, that um, I show sometimes where you literally have a barcode on the patient and, you know, what we're striving for is that the patient goes into the doctor, the doctor puts a little scanner on them and the barcode tells them all the, you know, inflammatory and genetics and DNA and everything that's going on in the cells of that patient. 
and what you should target based on the profile mm. of that patient. So that's really, you know, it's a bit down the line, but I think in some respects there is a certain amount of personalized medicine going on already. Yeah, definitely. And I think especially in our group with the kind of constant feedback to the clinicians, I suppose, in a way yeah. we're able to maybe direct that as well. Um, I'm also interested, and I think it's it's such a brilliant kind of story and, and um, wonderful study The we work on ORA, so rheumatoid arthritis and also psoriatic arthritis, but recently or in the last few years we've been interested in uh, juvenile idiopathic arthritis and then Down's arthropathy. So maybe talk to you about that study, how that kind of um, got off the ground. I know Charlene Foley was very uh, influential there and then what we're seeing with immune cells. So actually that's a study that um, is actually very close to my heart. I'm glad you mentioned it and I think it shows you how an observation in a clinic can suddenly um, lead to translate or clinical research, translational research, but is also within five years having an impact in the clinic. So basically, um, so this is led by a group over in Crumlin Hospital, um, Professor Orla Colleen, Dr. Emma McDermott, and then the, the researcher that was in the lab and in the clinic following all the patients up was Dr. Charlene Foley. But how it started literally was an observation in the clinic. So basically, this is childhood inflammatory arthritis. And what Professor Orla Clean noticed is that when she saw children with Down syndrome coming into her clinic, it just seemed that every time she saw them, their inflammatory arthritis was much worse than children that were coming in with juvenile idiopathic, not that idiopathic arthritis, JIA. And it's not that some of them didn't have really bad arthritis either, but the children with Down syndrome all seemed to have bad inflammatory arthritis. With the children with JIA, it was kind of a mix. Some had mild, some had moderate, some had severe. So she didn't know whether this was just, you know, by chance that these children that she was seeing. So herself and Charlene, first of all, decided to do up an information leaflet. And they literally sent it around the whole of Ireland through Arthritis Ireland and Down Syndrome Ireland to try and raise awareness. And then Charlene, as a clinical fellow, part of her PhD, literally got into her car and went around Ireland and did pop-up clinics. And what they suspected in the actual clinic actually came to fruition because what they found was that an awful lot of parents who suspected something but they weren't sure and brought their children along to these clinics and suddenly the children were being diagnosed with inflammatory arthritis and because it was hard to diagnose them they were being diagnosed late as well so basically through the we've now got well um orla and charlene and emma now have the largest which is amazing the largest cohort of children with Down syndrome and inflammatory arthritis in the world. Mm. And, and it was through this observation going to a screening program and 75% of the children now that are diagnosed with this form of inflammatory arthritis were identified through them doing this screening program, which you know, so that's the clinical part, which to me is just amazing. And then when they did analyze you know, the inflammatory arthritis in these children, it's a combination of, yes, there was a delayed diagnosis, but they also think it's a more aggressive disease. But also what's interesting is that in the general population of children, or one in a thousand are diagnosed with JIA, whereas children with Down syndrome, it's a one in 50. So God. the prevalence yeah. of children with Down syndrome is much bigger than the general population of children. So from a clinical perspective, that was just you know hugely impactful to actually know that that is happening. So then from my perspective, that's where I came in. And um, so we really wanted to know, well, you know, 
if it is a more aggressive disease, would we see this in the immune system? Um, and so we'd very limited access because these are children to any cells. But I have to say thank you again to children and their parents for consenting to be involved in the studies. So we're really, really lucky to get cells and tissue from these children. And what we have found is that um, the immune system in these children is much more activated. Again, so I think we, we kind of had a stepwise progression. We had healthy controls, then we had children with just with Down syndrome, then we had children with JIA, and then we had children with Down syndrome and inflammatory arthritis. And we basically found a stepwise increase in you know, the dysfunction of the immune cells. The, the immune cells were the most activated in the children with Down syndrome. So we found that the immune cells were the most activated, but we also then, when we looked at these fibroblasts, that are the mm. ones that are in the joint that invade into the cartilage, they were also, we are doing preliminary data with that now, and we also found that they are more aggressive in these children as well. So they're very vulnerable children. And I think this study has gone from an observation mm. to really understanding that, you know, these children need to be, you know, um, screened, diagnosed, treated early. We're starting to understand a little bit more about, you know, you know the dysfunction in the immune system. But already, you know, through the clinical aspect, that's having an impact for those children. So it's an amazing story, I think. And it just mm. shows you, I think, as well, how what I do, I think there's three partners in it, really. There's the clinicians and the nurses and the clinical team. There's us, the scientists that are all the nerds in the lab. But the most important aspect of everything we do is the patients, because mm. we wouldn't have any insight into what's going on if the patients weren't willing to get involved in our research. So I really feel passionate about that, particularly for that study, because they were children, you know, and mm. so it was fantastic. And I think one of the reasons why it was such a delayed diagnosis was because these children couldn't verbalize or kind of vocalize their pain. Yeah. Uh, and I know yeah. you, you you show there's a, a lovely video of a little girl and she's struggling to kind of get down the stairs and, she, you know, her joints are quite sore. And then after it was it six months, I think six months on uh, one of these amazing biologic agents, she jumped down the stairs. So actually, it's a fantastic story to see. I think everyone that sees it cries every time they see it, but I think it's really to create awareness, you know, of the problem as well. So that, um, and the more awareness we have of these, the more information people with these diseases get and the more inclined they are to get involved in research and not, not just, you know, the scientific, but the clinical part are even more involved in trying to understand and disseminate the research as well. Yeah, no, definitely. Um, yeah, so I'm also interested kind of within your career in academia and looking back, what do you find the most frustrating or stressful part uh, of being a scientist? And I suppose now being the PI, head of a lab. And then on the flip side, you know, what do you love about it and what drives this passion for, I suppose, investigation and, and learning? I suppose, you know, in, in academia, I feel like we're learning every single day. So kind of what drives, what drives that uh, quest for knowledge? Good question. Um, we could be here for about 10 hours on that one. Um, you know, um, what drives me is the challenge, I suppose, of solving a problem and really from the point of view of solving a problem that can impact on a real life person. Do you know what I mean? So I've been very lucky over the years to have, I mean, I really have the most fantastic team of students, postdocs who, you know, have all been dedicated and just as passionate as me about, you know, what we're trying to do. So from that point of view, I come home, and there are days I come home very negative, but most days I come home really positive because I have a great sense of achievement, not just, you know, that I feel we're, we're doing really good work, but also that actually I have this fantastic team of students and postdocs around me that feel the same or, and that are as passionate about it that I am. 
I really want to understand what's going on in these diseases. So I hope, you know, what I do is um, having an impact. And I think even though we, we you know, there, there are very difficult days because we get a lot of rejections. So the rejections would be, you know, you spend a lot of time writing the grants to get funding to do your research. And then a year later, you get rejected. You could spend three years doing um, research for a paper and you get the third reviewer who's not very nice and rejects you. So you have to deal with that on a day-to-day basis. But at the same time, when you do get those papers in, when you do find a result that's taken you six months to get. And then I suppose, you know, for me, I mean, somebody about a year ago asked me, well, what's your most proudest moment of being a scientist? And I was sitting there thinking, what is my most proudest moment? And actually, it's not really me. It's actually um, all my students, actually, and my postdocs, because when I see them present at a meeting and they come down buzzing because everyone was really excited about their research and they got asked questions. And when they do their PhDs and they come out of their viva, so excited because they felt the two people that were examining them were just as interested in their research. So I have to say, if I was to evaluate, you know, what I feel most proudest of is the people that have come through my lab and to see them, one, get just as passionate about research, but also that they go on to develop their own research and become very successful in their own right, whether they stay in research or develop it in other areas. Mm. Um, that's probably mm-hmm. what gives me my biggest buzz. Yeah, and I mean, I know there's definitely highs like you spoke about there, but also I suppose as the head of a group and as a PI, there's been many times when you get a knock on your door and it's me or someone else going, this didn't work. And, you know, I'm, I might, there might be a few tears sometimes, although sometimes you spurred them on. There was one particular occasion you were like, do I see tears coming out of your eyes? <laughs> and when you said that, then I did start to cry. Um, so that must be kind of hard because I feel, I've said this to you before, a lot of times you're nearly like a, I don't know, a therapist in there and we come in and we say, this didn't work. And Is that hard or how do you kind of, you know, um, manage that? It is, you know, as I said, it is and it isn't. Yeah, there are days where, you know, um, you all do come in and I think, and I actually, you know, I think every single PhD student probably has cried. And I think, Probably that just shows you how difficult the PhD is to get because they're not straightforward. You really need to be passionate about it. And the reason they're hard to get is because they're difficult, you know. So, yeah, so actually um, I do find it difficult sometimes when one of my students, our postdocs, has been working on something. And it's happened many a time where it doesn't work and we've been working on it for ages so it is hard to actually, because um, I always have to be very positive. So it is hard to, um, sometimes, you know, you're constantly, as you said, giving them therapy. Um, but I think <laughs> you develop over the years as a PI. And I think, oh, which you've probably experienced as yourself, always in the back of my mind for, um, particularly my PhD students, because a lot of the postdocs should be starting to develop their own ideas as well. But for the PhD students, and um, if things aren't working out, and you know, a lot of the time they don't, so you get negative results. I always have alternative strategies. So I do tend to have my PhD students possibly doing another little project on the side so that if the one that we start off with doesn't quite start to work out, that we still have something else to work on. But at the same time, I, I think that's a really important point, actually, that I've just brought up, that there's so much negative results in research. So a lot of what we do we go in with our hypothesis, we go in with aims, and six months down the line, what we thought would be a good protein to look at or a good protein that we thought might be in, you know, we should inhibit and would stop the inflammation, does nothing. And we sit there after six months going, okay, so we have to move on to another project. 
and I suppose that's one of the bad things about science and, you know, that actually it's very hard to publish negative results and they should be just as important as positive results. Because if you don't publish the negative results, then a whole lot of other labs around the world might think the same thing as you, that this protein is really exciting and be wasting money and time and effort. So I think there does need to be a bit of a move towards that it's really important to you know publish negative negative results as opposed to the positive results because the positive results are great but a lot of the negative results lead to the positive results so i think yeah. it's important both um sides of the coin i think so but yes most of my phd students though are very resilient and you know after a few days and maybe you know walk around to the ginger man we were all fine <laughs> a few points and then and then we're fine and i think you know like I feel like anyone who's listened to this can hear the enthusiasm and the passion that you have for your research and, and you know, you're talking about the passion that your researchers have, but I think that's reflected in kind of what you, the example that you show. And I think for me, especially having spent three and a half years, maybe four years, we have a really good group and we have such a, such a bond, I think. I think we're very lucky. Like some of my closest friends are in the lab and I think it's very unusual to find a group of colleagues who can spend 10, 12 hours a day in the lab, but then want to go out and have a few drinks. And with you as well, you know, we've had many nights out, which I think is brilliant. Um, but Ursa, one of my last questions for you is if you weren't a scientist and if you weren't um, a professor of rheumatology, where do you think your life would have ended up or what career do you think you would have had? Oh God, uh, well, do you know what? I'm just, you know, I, I probably said it at the beginning, I'm a mad sports fan. So, I mean, absolutely mad sports fan. So obviously the only o- other alternative you know, when I was in school was possibly PE teaching. But now actually, you know, things have kind of come full circle because, you know, there's a lot of work now being done on exercise and sport and, you know, mm-hmm. diseases. So, um, and I have, I'm plotting and planning some studies for next year, looking at patients doing exercise and looking at their immune systems, pre-post therapy and all that. But, uh, sorry, pre-post exercise. But actually, so I think if um, I didn't end up in science, well, if I didn't end up in translational science, I think the only two other areas I would have ended up in were either sport or um, geology. I'd be there a little bit still hanging on to science in geology, taking photographs of whole loads of rocks, possibly. But they would be two areas I think um, I would have been involved in somewhere along route, I think. Brilliant. Well, thank you so much for uh, taking the time to chat to me today um, and yeah, coming on the podcast. So it's been great. Yep. Thank you very much. As well. <laughs> and I'll see you sometime later on in the week. <laughs> so that's it for another week of Unraveling Science. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to like and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Acast or wherever you get your podcasts.